This is Zorro Valley Catholic, and I'm Father John Arnold. And today we're celebrating the Feast of Corpus Christi, the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, over the last three weeks, I've been talking about the Trinity, really leading up to this Feast of Corpus Christi and last week's Feast of the Most Holy Trinity. See, the basic problem is this. How do we think about the invisible God? The problem is God is invisible. Jesus told the apostle Philip in John chapter 14. Jesus said to him, I've been with you for so long a time you still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Because at the heart of it is we want to see God. We want to be sure of God's presence with us. When we pray and you're in that empty room, don't you want to know that he's listening? Jesus is the human face of God. Jesus shares in God's nature and existed before he took human flesh. Oh, who can understand that? But a mystery like the Incarnation and the Trinity are not questions to be answered, but the realities to be explored, divine realities revealed to us through the human face of Jesus Christ. So what do you think of paintings depicting the Trinity? We've talked about St. Augustine and St. Patrick and St. John Paul II. You know, when you look at paintings, it's a little bit different than an explanation, an analogy like a, a uh, God is like a human family or God is like a shamrock. You know, as a general rule, we're okay with Jesus. We know he has a beard, although the first images of Jesus in the catacombs depict him as a beardless youth. Maybe he just got tired of shaving. He is a human male, after all. But paintings of the Father and the Spirit, dicey business, that. So here we go. The most common images of the Trinity in Western art are those of an old man, that'd be God the Father, sometimes depicted as a king, a pope, or even a high priest, which is, seems kind of odd in a way. But along with Jesus, who you always recognize, he's wearing a beard, or he looks pretty stern. And then there's always a dove as the image of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the Father is holding the Son on the cross, with the Holy Spirit hovering in between the two. Or the Father and Son are enthroned in heaven, with this Holy Spirit, the dove, hovering in between the two. In the book of Revelation, in the last uh, chapter, uh, the Father is, is sitting on a throne, the Lamb is on the altar, and a river is coming out of the altar. Father is on the throne, the Lamb is uh, on the altar, and this river that runs through paradise is the life-giving Holy Spirit, like Jesus talks about him in the Gospel. Well, the Spirit is, after all, the love shared between Father and Son, for the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. God is not two men and a bird, obviously, so the limitations of the genre are obvious. Still, graphic representations lend themselves to misunderstanding by people who are not well catechized. Images do, however, communicate emotion better than explanations, like the ones we've had discussed in the previous weeks. You know, by the way, graphic representations of the Trinity led to a massive fight in the 8th and 9th centuries, mostly in the Eastern Mediterranean, where Orthodoxy uh, now is. But at that time, it was all Catholicism. That 8th and 9th century fight is called 
the iconoclast controversy. Iconoclast means those who break icons. Because remember, we still think of icons as an Eastern art form. But it used to be throughout the Mediterranean. The oldest icons in the world pretty much exist in Rome because we never burned them, although others did. Mostly, this iconoclastic controversy was a fight uh, in the areas overrun by Islam. Why? Because historically, Islam, after overrunning with military might the weakened Christian East, uh, imposed on non-Muslims their aversions to, quote, idolatry. That is, when they were real hardcore, they wouldn't make any images of people. Now they take pictures and all of that stuff. But still, they don't like to make images of Muhammad. You remember, that's what provoked that strike against that uh, Parisian magazine because they put together a, a cartoon with Muhammad in it. And so they had to die. Well, anyway, Islam doesn't make pictures of Muhammad and because they're considered to be graven images. But in that iconoclast controversy, great saints like St. John of Damascus fought back, although they lived under Islam's thumb. So they had to fight with ideas. St. John pointed out to the Christians that the second person of the Trinity had taken on human flesh as one image of God in the world. He had left the Eucharist as the image of God in the world. And so God did not hate matter, but humans cannot make matter God. You know, when my trip to the Mideast back in 96 or 7, whatever it was, we were taken to an old church that Islam had taken over, and they'd gone and pounded out the faces of every single saint. So the bodies were there, but the faces were pounded out. So the Christians would know who's in control. You see, it's about the material world. For Islam, God just does stuff to the material world. For Christianity, the material world is a way that points to God. It is not God. It can't be God. But it can lift us up to God. Because the material world is God's creation. And God's creation directs us to a fuller participation in God's world. God's world is the dead. God's world is the saints. God's world is all of that stuff which you can't explain through physics. Creation, after all, has angels, saints, and my friends, the Eucharist. The iconoclast controversy is just another example of the absolutist puritanical streak in Christianity. Real Christianity is about a balance between all of these tensions. Whatever somebody takes one truth and absolutizes it, it becomes a heresy. But God in the world, hey, deal with the incarnation. But God in the world, hey, deal with the Eucharist. The Eucharist is God's substantial presence in the accidental form of bread and wine. That's according to St. Thomas Aquinas. Substantia is the stuff of which uh, describes what, what a, a thing is, or God has a substantia. The accidents are how it's, you know, whether I have brown hair, or a big nose, or a little nose. Did Jesus ask us to remember him through the idol of bread and wine? No. Jesus is either the Son of God or he is not. The Eucharist is his body and blood or it is not. How you come down on those issues consistently says a lot about how you see the world. Jesus says, unless you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Hey, lots at stake here. 
Let's think together about the scriptures. Anyone who says it's not the flesh and blood of Jesus has to deal with what Jesus says in John chapter 6, regardless of everything about the Last Supper in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or St. Paul in 1 Corinthians. But John chapter 6 just says it the way it is. And that's really what the Catechism of the Catholic Church is based on. You know, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1324, it says this. The Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. It's where Christianity comes from. The Eucharist calls us into being. And it's somehow the top of the mountain closest to God. For in the blessed Eucharist is contained the whole spiritual good of the church, namely Christ himself, our past, our sacrifice. So here's the first thing when you think about scripture and just please breathe this in and breathe it out. The Eucharist is a who, not a what. The Eucharist is a who, not a what. The Eucharist is a who, that is the risen Jesus, living in heaven, not the corpse of someone who lived 2,000 years ago. The risen Jesus, to believe in the Eucharist is to believe in the resurrection. A what is bread and wine. A who comes to us in the presence of a what. Does that sound like the incarnation? It does. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not such as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Come on, how could you misunderstand that? We've discussed metaphors as signs, symbols, or typologies. Jesus' statement is not a metaphor. Metaphors make a comparison stronger, not weakness. Think it through. Jesus, the human, and Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is a greater reality than just common bread and wine, or even the manna Moses and the people ate in the desert. It just is. You're more than a muffin on, on sitting on your shelf. Bread and wines and manna are all what's. A human who is God is a who. The Eucharist is a who, not a what. Bread and wine might sustain life until death, but in and of themselves, Bread and wine cannot give eternal life. They can lift up your spirits, make you feel good, help you pass a, a difficult uh, time in your life, as long as you don't abuse them, right? But Jesus claims that his flesh and blood, the living bread, will give the recipient just that, eternal life. Muhammad, Buddha, and Joseph Smith never claimed any such thing because they couldn't. Only God can. The Eucharist is not idol worship because God himself gave it to us as the bread from heaven. You know, it's a tough one for Catholics. Do you remember in the Exodus, the people had to trust God's word when they spread the lamb's blood around the, their door on top and down the sides? The Eucharist is our experience of that same choice. What you believe about the Eucharist marks you out from the world. So 
in John chapter 6 when the Jews responded. How can he give us his flesh to eat? Jesus did not back off. He didn't, he said, didn't say, hey guys, I was only using a metaphor. No, no, no. He doubled down and made his statement even more concrete. He said, amen, amen, or so be it, so be it. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. John chapter 6, verses 52 to 53. Keep me honest. Only God can do this. Your mother, dad, or spouse cannot. People might think they're God, but no, the standard is can you be bread and wine? Jesus is either who he says he is or all of this is really crazy. The resurrection is the bedrock of Eucharistic faith. We are not consuming the body, soul, humanity, and divinity of a dead man. What good would that do? But the Son of God risen from the dead. Sometimes non-Catholic Christians ask, why do you Catholics make so much out of the Eucharist? Or why do you insist on receiving the Eucharist frequently, like daily, even with daily Mass? Or do you really believe it becomes the body and blood just because the priest says so? I would say in Persona Christi. Why do they say that? Because they don't understand God. They just don't understand who God is. That's what we spend time talking about the Trinity. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the life that makes everything that exists possible and is bringing creation into a participation in this life. That's what heaven is. That's when Jesus says life abundantly. That's why just being moral and having a nice life with a good condo, ultimately for eternity, it will not work. You're made for life in the Trinity. And the Eucharist is that life offered to everybody in the world. You know, daily Mass, my friends, and I've been going to daily Mass since I was like 19 years old. Daily Mass is a good way to start the day. Even when I wasn't a priest, um, gosh, I would start, start that day going downtown by going to 6.30 Mass at the cathedral, I think the 6 a.m. at, at St. Uh, Peter and Paul, if I get out of bed because it was just this moment of quiet prayer, which I loved. And I think it's why people become daily mass junkies. It is somehow a participation in that calm, that peace, who is Christ present in the church. You know, Jesus lived and died 2,000 years ago. How is his body and blood available to us now? Here's how. John chapter six. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not such as the fathers ate and died. It's not like that. He who eats this bread will live forever. The Eucharist is heavenly bread. It's like the man in the desert, but fundamentally different. So, by the way, if you get a chance, this is why in chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation, check this out, keep me honest. St. John describes the heavenly liturgy. There's prayers, there's incense, there's an altar, there's a lamb, there's hymns. What's it sound like? It's the heavenly mass. It's the worship of God. And in heaven, I always think about it like this, it's like being absolutely in love. That's what the closest human experience we have of worship, head over heels in love. Well, hopefully we're all on our way, right? Learning how to love, that's the key. We're fed from that very heavenly altar. That's why in Eucharistic prayer number one, which we say it's the longest prayer, um, 
But in Eucharistic prayer number one, the priest says, in humble prayer, we ask you, almighty God, command that these gifts be borne by the hands of your holy angel to your altar on high in the sight of your divine majesty, so that all of us who through this participation at the altar receive the most holy body and blood of your son, making the sign of the cross, may be filled with every grace and heavenly blessing. It's why we pray for the dead and invoke the angels and the saints at every mass. It's why we pray for the dead at mass. Heaven and earth come together in Christ, the Eucharist and the Mass. And so the Eucharist, you know, the reading from St. Paul, what do the early Christians in St. Paul uh, think about the Eucharist? Um, same thing we do. The visible miracle of the man in the Old Testament helped the early Christians to understand the invisible miracle of bread and wine that changed Jesus's body and blood in, under the appearance of bread and wine. St. Thomas Aquinas would say transubstantiation. It's a theological understanding and it really does help to understand that the substantia, the basis is God, the accents of bread and wine remain. The cup of blessing which we bless, it says in 1 Corinthians, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. We all partake of the one bread. Focus on partake, participation. Here we go. So the Greek word St. Paul used that we translate as partake, participation, or my friend's communion is actually koinonia. St. Paul talks about the sacrifices of Israel and even the sacrifices of the pagans in the temple using the term koinonia. Why? Because when the Israelites offered sacrifice, it's called an oblation. They would offer part and be burned up. The priest would give part to the family. This is how the Passover lamb sacrifice worked. And they would take home and they would eat their part of the sacrifice. An oblation is offered to God, but the offerer shares in it. That's why we refer to the Eucharist as an oblation. It's one kind of sac sacrifice. And so what St. Paul said is when the Israelites offered sacrifice, they are communicants, that is in koinonia, at the altar with God. He uses this word koinonia to describe the sacrifices of the Old Testament. He uses it to describe the body and blood of Jesus. He also uses it to describe what the pagans do when we sacrifice things to real idols, sex, money, power, evil, the real idols in the world. St. Paul says that's why you can't eat meat sacrificed to idols because you're participating in the demonic, something that is contrary to God, not just in the sense that we think of the devil in red tights, which is ridiculous, but that somehow everything that doesn't accept God, in some sense, rejects it. That's why there's always an allure to evil. St. Paul believes that the Eucharist is really Jesus's body and blood and is a real sacrifice, a real participation in Jesus's sacrifice on the cross at Calvary when he gave his life for the salvation of the world. I'd like to sum all this up, if you can just hold on for one more moment. Eucharist is a who, not a what. 
Here's the second part. The Eucharist is the image of God that God himself gives us. Paintings of the Trinity have the same flaws as basically explanations of the Trinities. All analogies, all paintings can open up something, but can also mislead and misdirect. That's the problem of, of images in general. We can be misled by analogies or paintings of the Trinity, as we've discussed over the last three weeks. The image of the love of God that the Son of God gave us is his body and blood as food for everlasting life. It becomes so, this is important, through the will of the Father, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, all of whom are invoked in divine worship. Sacraments are visible signs of an unseen grace. It's a visible sign of something that happened 2,000 years ago, and the power of that sacrifice, which extends out through creation, in the past and into the future. Remember when Jesus rises from the dead, uh, the dead come out of the graves in Matthew's gospel because that power reaches back and redeems human beings all the way back to Adam. God, and this is another important point about sacraments, God binds himself to the sacraments. They do what God says they'll do. Why? Because God said it. But God is not in turn bound by the sacraments. That means, you know, everyone talks, well, there's a little truth in all these religions. Here's a better way for a Catholic to say it. We believe that God's grace is operative throughout the world. The sacraments are a visible sign of that grace. And that if you accept the truth of them, then there would be something wrong if you didn't want to come to them, something fundamentally wrong, to believe that Jesus was there and not come to him. If you recall, when God appeared to Moses in the form of the burning bush, he told Moses that his name is I Am. Do you remember that? Of course you do. Jesus used that same phrase in the Gospels. He used to, when they came to arrest him in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, do you remember in John's Gospel, Jesus says, are, they say, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he says, I am, and they all fall down. They say it again, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And again, the thunderous. I am. Do you remember the story in Mark's gospel when Jesus is walking across the water and there's this huge storm going on and they shout out to him? You know, it's so weird because we don't translate it like this. But what Jesus says, don't be afraid. I am. Ah! I mean, it's there in all the gospels, the, the divine name that he uses. You know, my Hebrew professor taught me when I was in the seminary. Warning, warning, warning. I had only one semester, which is all they really offered. I just wanted to know kind of how the language worked. Well, anyway, Pat Kramer, the great pet father, Pat Kramer, is now gone. Hopefully the great worship in heaven, because he was a heck of a guy. He told us that the Hebrew that we translate as, quote, I am, end quote, really could be more properly translated as, quote, I am what I do, end quote, or am doing, end quote. Because God is pure act. God is what God does. With God, it's right all out there on the table. In the Eucharist, the true image of God is food and care for his people as God's creation rolls out around us. The Eucharist is the meaning of creation, where it says, remember Jesus, the count when Jesus will be all in all? Um, there we go. That's the Eucharist. It's a Eucharistic meaning of creation. 
Eucharist is God's image come down from the heavenly liturgy to St. Mark and to every uh, Catholic and Orthodox uh, church. You know, so the liturgy is a great gift of the Father and the body and blood of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. In a real sense, the Eucharist is the image of the divine trinity. Hey, I've been talking about it for four weeks. You had to think I had a point here somewhere, that this is the image of the, the work of the trinity in the world. The Eucharist is the triune God doing what God does, and this is it. God leads and feeds his people all the way up to the heavenly world and abundant life. Let's follow. This has been another great production of Oral Valley Catholic, and I'm Father John Arnold. And Corpus Christi is the last of the great feasts for a while. The Feast of the Assumption will be on August 15th, and I'm looking forward to that because I love feasts about our Blessed Lady. And until we're back together again, God keep you holy, happy, and healthy. Peace. <music>